tonight on This Is Vinyl Tap. Hey, let's dress like cops. Broadway looks so medieval. Pull down the future with the one you love. Where the silence spreads and men dig holes. In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Doug Cooper, and this is this is Vinyl Tap. I am joined tonight by T. Tony. Hello, everybody. And I'm joined with Jonathan J.M. Rowe. Good every uh, good evening, everyone in Tapsterland. Good every evening. Good every evening. Yes, everyone, <laughs> wherever whatever, you are, whatever every, that is. everywhere. Yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're joining you from Austin, Texas, and we're in the Vinegaroon Saloon. We're going a long way from home tonight. We're going up to little city up north called New York. And get a rope. Get a rope. <laughs> we're doing a 1977 album called marquee moon by the band television yep this uh jam did you pick this one i did not pick this Tony, one did you pick this one i did not now that i think about it i didn't pick this one odd listener's choice listener's yeah. choice <laughs> ladies listener's and gentlemen choice, we have a yes. listener's choice I think this would have been picked by one of well, us. Well, I, I know believe, I would have picked it at one to, point. To be fair, I believe this album was on our list. At least JM and I both put yeah, it on the list. Yeah, I put it on the list. Yeah. Uh, it was, but, and no one knows where that list is anymore. Do no, we don't. <laughs> but it's when we in started internet um, ether. when we started encouraging people to reach out to us, we got a lot of people asking us to do this album. I just wanted to mention a few of the early people. Uh, one of them is a gentleman by the name of Bla- <clears throat> excuse me, Blake Mark Diaz, and another person, Blair F., whose last name we don't know, but we do know Blair is in New York. So we want to thank both of them, as well as everybody else who asked us to do this one. From what the critics say and from what everybody who listens to music say, it was inevitable, I think, yeah. that we would have to cover this or get to, I should say. Uh, before we go any further, I have one item. We have a listener in Pampa, Texas. Pampa? Okay. Yep. We have one listener in Pampa, Texas. <laughs> That's about okay. all there is in Pampa. And 
please write in so I can know who you are. <laughs> I used to live in Pampa, so I'm very curious. It's not a very big town and nope. not known for being on the cutting edge of rock and roll. So, <laughs> Are we known for being on the cutting edge Austin? of Austin? I guess we, no, the, uh, the this three is of us. Yeah. I guess we are tonight. We're on the cutting edge if you're going back. <laughs> <laughs> if you if you throw a dart and hit the yeah, 70s Somebody was someplace. writing something real tacky. Uh, well, y'all don't do anything from this century or yeah, something like yeah, that. Yeah. Who, that would sound like one of Tony's friends. It was one of my friends who was, <laughs> was recommending several albums. Hell. I'm catching hell from a lot of my friends that are giving us we, we, Giving yeah, us in, we, uh, about the business for not... Um, yeah, but going l- past the seventies. We also have to say this is not an album that has gone unnoticed by the critics. This is recommended uh, by on several top one hundred lists of the greatest albums of all time. It's on uh, albums you should hear before you die. It's um, it's one of those critics are tripping over themselves it, to yeah. talk about how great it, it is. It's it, funny. The uh, it reminds me of Love Forever. The way well, it's yeah. very much. Like uh, forever changes because yeah. It's yeah, what did I call it? Love, love forever. forever. Love forever. It's very love much that, like forever changes Patty because <laughs> nobody listened to this album in the states, at least. Right. I don't, but it was huge in the UK, and we'll get to that later. But yeah, when um, I think it's funny. Rolling Stone put it in their top five hundred doodad, you know, their yeah. albums, and it was um, early, like they moved it up. Yeah, you know, they go. They, the initial one I think was in the three hundreds, and then after sitting on it a while, they moved it up to like the one eighties or something like that. Well, I remember when the the twentieth anniversary Rolling Stone magazine, twentieth uh, anniversary of the Rolling Stone magazine, they had Marquee Moon is in their top one hundred. They only did a hundred albums, and this was actually in I think it was it may have been like ninety eight or something like that. Um, it's been a it's been a critic's darling for quite some time. There's something we're going to have to do early tonight, earlier than usual, because we're about to face an avalanche. Gentlemen. <laughs> we have all, all been, been here, here before. before. <laughs> That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Into, at post-production. Yeah, we, sometimes we, for, <laughs> we forget that or it falls into cracks. Well, we, we have talked before about how easy it is for us to pull off singing that harmony yeah we do it we do it very <laughs> which one you, who's gonna be david crosby i'm stephen stills i'm graham nash oh God. i guess i'm david crosby thanks <laughs> anyway new young in there you know how i can tell who's singing whose song it is if it's crosby stills nice and young song no if it's if it's about cheating it's stephen stills yeah if it sounds like a uh, man who's in jail for cocaine or uh, marijuana, David or Crosby. Crosby. David Crosby. Yeah. If, it's, and, uh, if, if it's it someone... sounds like a children's song, it's Graham Nash. <laughs> what about if, if it's preaching? It, uh, Neil Young. <laughs> That's right, ladies and gentlemen. We said Neil Young, so please download uh, several thousand. <laughs> Pound down <laughs> Neil Young. <laughs> All right, back to the subject at hand, yes. our, our uh, connections. Uh, J.M., do you have a connection I've got one that is kind of loose. Okay, so we talked about uh, this band is television. There was a person that we spoke of before <laughs> in who plays guitar for Blondie, Chris Stein, and he actually uh, auditioned for a band uh, early on, uh, the uh, early incarnation of television. Um, can I can I piggyback on that real quick? You bet. We allow piggybackation. So both Verlaine and Hell swear that Chris Stein auditioned for them. Yeah. Chris Stein has no memory of auditioning for them. Right. Yeah. He's he they both said he auditioned and could have fit in, but he didn't like what they were doing. He didn't think it was commercial enough and he thought mm-hmm. it was pretty harsh sounding. 
So he decided well, he to tried. pass. But he says, he's on the record saying, I don't recall ever auditioning for them. So huh. who knows? You who know, knows? there's a lot yeah. of stuff floating around in the air a lot of drugs and in the veins. Going on. That time. It seems like a lot of these bands we talk about have poor memories. And yeah. I don't know if we've gotten to and, the and it's, of what causes it, that. It's difficult to recreate some of the history, especially when a lot of it's the oral history told from these guys and they yeah. contradict each other all the time. Yeah. Since we're talking about second guitarists, I'd like to, we've mentioned this at an earlier podcast, but um, a gentleman by the name of Douglas Colvin actually tried out for them. And this is this is documented by both Douglas Colvin, of course, is uh, D.D. Ramone. And the funny story about that was, uh, according to Richard Hell, all he knew how to do was play bar co- chords. So he's, <laughs> they're like, okay, this song's in C. And he would hit a bar code. They're like, no, C. <laughs> and he'd look at him and move his finger up a little bit. They'd shake their head no. And he'd move it up until they got to to the, the C. And he's then they'd shake it. But he said, obviously, uh, he didn't make it. And, and Dee Dee Ramone's quote about it is so great. This is classic Dee Dee. is like, I didn't get in television because I couldn't play no good. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, let me go with my more obscure one. The co-producer of this album is a guy by the name of Andy Johns, and his brother is Glenn Johns, who we talked about in the Who episode. So they were both well-known engineers. They're, the, the Johns family is kind of a fascinating family. We could probably do a podcast. He's, them, them, for those them. of you who watch the Get Back documentary, yeah. he's a sharp-dressed guy all over, <laughs> young guy all over that documentary. But Wearing there's the actually sunglasses unnecessarily and the big fur coat. It's yeah, he looks pretty good for for that time. But there's actually a tighter connection with Andy Johns. He actually engineered Houses of the Holy. Is that right? Yep. Okay. So and he and which engineered is, a lot of the Rolling Stones. He too, did, which yeah. is one of the Why reasons he got picked up. He I got believe. picked yeah. for this. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he actually engineered mm-hmm. a lot of that Zeppelin stuff, including an album we talked about, Houses of the Holy. Yeah. So and we have some uh, Lou Reed and. That's true. Uh, John yeah. Kale stuff uh, yeah. with Kansas City and that whole scene. Max's Kansas I, City, yeah. I, I, I've got another. Keep going. All right. Brian Eno. Really? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> this is news to me. This is news to me. I know. Some of our uh, but some people listening for the first time may not know that J.M. Rowe talks about Brian Eno every time he has a chance. And here he had a chance and he failed to bring I it failed up. Failed to bring it up. Yeah. So in 1974, the A&R man for Island Records decided to bring television, the television with Richard Hell into the studio to record some demos, and he thought it would be a good idea to drag Eno in to help out. So Brian Eno produced five demos by television that the band, particularly Tom Verlaine, hated the sound <laughs> and production of. Doesn't surprise me. Um, well, you listen to them, and they're definitely significantly rougher than what the album we're talking about tonight sounds like. But I think there's some speculation that after the falling out that Verlaine and Hell had, that he just didn't want to have anything to do with anything Richard Hell was oh, part yeah, of. Yeah. So he just vocally <clears throat> disdained the Brian Eno stuff. But yeah, Brian Eno, he wasn't big on hanging speakers from the or amplifiers <laughs> from the ceiling. Yeah, he wanted yeah. to do a bunch of weird stuff. And Brian Eno evidently. You know, there's some speculation that he sings on the demos and he plays keys. He doesn't do either of those things. He was just behind the... Behind behind the, the, the and I don't know how much of the actual production he had to deal with. But yeah, uh, Richard Williams wanted... thought He thought if he brought Brian Eno in, two things would happen. That Island Records would be significantly more interested in signing television. Yeah. And he also was hoping that 
Brian Eno would sign them to his EG management company as well. Neither of which happened. Which happened, yeah. What about Roxy Music? What about Roxy Music? Anyone? I don't don't have a connection. This band, television, (laughs) accused Roxy Music of stealing their love as a drug idea from Venus. Oh, Oh, interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, I can kind of see that. Of course, we have another club that seems to be connected with some Oh, people. yeah. You want to talk about that? Or who do you want to mention that? <laughs> Jam, what club are we talking about? CBGBs. Oh, yeah, the Bluegrass Club. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one of the things that uh, I didn't mean for this to come up in connections, but one of the things that I think that you can kind of, you know, we this is what, the fourth or fifth band we've talked about that have, that cut their chops in new well, we got york the ramones the pretenders and the talking, uh, heads, talking heads and blondie and, and so uh, anyone left yeah the ramones we've kind of tangentially talked about them so and i think that one of the things that this say album gently because oh. they beat um his team the sex business <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but one of the things i think that this album did for me listening to it again and doing the, the past <laughs> podcast has just made me realize even though these bands were so desperate in their their actual sound, you can kind of see where they were feeding off of each other a little bit. And I think the television, either they were the guys that the progenitors of this, or they were just absorbing all this and and Tele- putting it out. Into television was the first band to play CBGBs. Is that right? Yeah. So, so, so Hilly Crystal stage. Hilly Crystal had a club down in the Bowery called Hilly's. And then he decided that he decided country music was going to be the next big thing. (laughs) So he changed the name of it. And Verlaine and Richard Lloyd are walking through the Bowery, I guess, to get to the rehearsal loft. And they see this guy standing out in front of this club with this sign above the marquee that says CBGBO-OMFUG. And like, what does that that mean? Country, bluegrass, blues, and other music for uplifting gourmandizers <laughs> is what it meant, stood for. That's Like I said, Hilly Crystal thought this was going to be the next big thing. After a, a pretty casual conversation, Verlaine sort of intimated that television played that kind of music. <laughs> and so they get a regular Sunday night gig. We're, yeah, we're the good old television. They, good old television boys. <laughs> good old they said... Uh, <laughs> I said, he, he really didn't dig what they were doing. He said, but I'll guarantee you we'll get more people here on Sunday night than you have on Saturday night. Right, yeah. which is true. And it, I think the first time they played, they got a, a Terry Ork, who we'll talk about a little bit later, who was sort of their de facto manager at the time, got a bunch of his alcoholic buddies. Yeah, he went out and got there. everybody he knew who was an alcoholic. Yeah. And so it'll be a, it'll be a high tab. <laughs> yeah. And so they came out and played, but they played every Sunday and then... As a result of that, they started getting other people. Patty, this Patty Smith group started playing there. Uh, Blondie, the Ramones, all of that stuff happened because television talked Hilly Crystal into getting this yeah. this type of music playing. He um, did something really cool, also, and that was instead of having an opening act and a headliner, they would one would open, do a set, then the next one do a set, then another one do a set, so they'd alternate so that. Everybody was getting to hear. Hmm. People would hang out to hear another CBDB set and listen to Blondie through mm-hmm. that set. So everybody got to hear all the bands, and I think that that helped them all get a following. I have a question. 
I know you're hosting, Doug, so I apologize. Okay, for... I'll go ahead. Tony, do you have any questions? <laughs> no, I just, I, something JM said made me think about this, and this may have been something you were going to ask, so if I jump the gun, I apologize. But when JM was talking about all these bands sort of playing together and how they were, you know, not necessarily all the same, I think, I, I was listening to those bands wondering, is this punk? Because they're lumped in with the punk scene a lot. I think a lot of that has to do with their where getting this whole scene off the ground at CBGB's as television to me is not a punk band. But then I started thinking about it. Is Blondie a punk band? Are the talking heads a punk band? No, uh, the, but the Ramones are uh, the Patty Smith band, a punk band. I mean, none of those bands are punk in the way that we've kind of thought about it. And I know Doug, you hate <clears throat> labels, but yeah. Um, yeah. When, 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 when I, time I was listening to this record, I was thinking of that. I think yeah. that the the way that he his vocal delivery is is in that punk vein, you know. Verlaine's I, vocals, I, I, they are that kind of almost whiny. But their attitude's not really punk. No, their no, attitude well, is not. I, out, they're a little the too fa- talented. Well, they're way too talented. <laughs> way punk. Too talented. Well, once the Richard, police, we got Richard the, Hell left, but yeah, the police <clears> problem. Yeah, like the police yeah. tried to I, hide it. I, the one thing they have going for them, very similar to the police, in terms of if you're going to throw the punk label on them, is their image. Their image. They cut their hair short. I mean, in 1974, yeah. there well, were look a at whole that. lot of... Yeah, look at the television, the the album cover. Right. I mean, he well, was even, but even we have to, to know something about that album cover. Was that picture chosen by their girlfriends to keep any other woman <laughs> from hitting on them? I, I, I think that that picture was taken by, who was the guy that passed? Maplethorpe. Yeah, Robert Maplethorpe took yeah. that picture. So Don't ever let him take a picture of us. <laughs> well, here, here's, the, here's my point, it's though. Possible. So Malcolm McLaren, who was the guy who got the sex pills off the ground, he was in New York in the early 70s. He was actually a de facto manager of the New, of York, the New York Dolls, Dolls yeah. towards the end of their career. He saw Richard Hell playing with television and saw the short hair and the ripped up clothes, and he took that back to the UK and basically exported that image to the UK and said, this is what punk is going to be, and all the utes of the UK bought into it. So They got into it a lot more than any Americans did. Well, I mean, we've talked about this before. UK punk is so different than Mm -hmm. American punk, Yeah, mainly because, as we mentioned in the the, – Ramones versus Sex Pistols. Well, that and also the jam, this whole yeah. idea of tearing everything down. None of these bands in America were interested in doing that. They were just kind of the next extension. You yeah. can see when you're talking about them playing off of each other, I can see a direct line from the Velvet Underground through the New York Dolls to television. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was mm-hmm. thinking that the exact same thing <laughs> yep. um, when I was listening to this. And I don't think we should pat ourselves on the back for no. noticing that. <laughs> no, 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 no. But you can, when you listen to Verlaine sing, sometimes yeah. he sounds, he's got the intonation of Lou Reed. Sometimes yeah. he sounds like David Johansson. It's yeah. just depending yeah. on what the song is and what the, what it's called for. But it's interesting how much he can sort of channel both of those guys. Yeah. Well, here's, yeah. here's what I want to ask. I always ask this. If you're throwing darts. Mm-hmm. And your dart lands right next to this band. Mm-hmm. What band does it land on? I think the Talking Heads. I think so too. That's a, that was the first thing that came it, to it, my head. I, I kept thinking. I know I said this <clears throat> in the Roxy Music episode that if if Brian Ferry wasn't going to sue David Byrne, but I think Tom Verlaine is standing behind Brian Ferry, <laughs> waiting to also <laughs> file suit. Yeah. Well, I had zero experience with this record. Oh, really? Oh, really? Uh-huh. So. I started from scratch, and the first thing I heard, I'm not saying this is an influence, obviously Mm -hmm. it isn't, but the 
the first thing I heard was Patti Smith. Uh, I can well, understand I, that too. Yeah, I think that's definitely an yeah. influence. I mean, Tom yeah. Berlane and Patti Smith were a couple for a while. Yeah. Well, and the I think Lenny K, Lenny K's guitar playing, I think, yeah. is really so you could they was, could that would have been a cool band if Berlane and Lenny K. Lenny K got together. Yeah. yeah. So well, if I'm you're out there, that, Lenny and Tom, why don't you? No, I think I think you're right about that, Patti Smith. I yeah. think I, I I wasn't as I'm not as surprised by some people were about the Brian Eno stuff. Cause I hear some Roxy music mm-hmm. in this too. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, this is a band that is as art rock as a punk. If you're going to call them a punk art rock or progressive rock is a punk band ever got. Yeah. Yeah. And if you told me this was a British band was in isolation and had nothing to, and you didn't bring up punk, I wouldn't have heard it. I really wouldn't. Well, I think there's a I, bit I of an, attitude, I hear so much but... else. You know, the main thing for me is, I was going to open with this, but I'm not clever enough to remember things. This is a guitar band it that is. I didn't pick. Yes, it's and a great guitar band. It really is. And the interesting thing about it is it's a guitar band with two distinctive lead guitarists. Yeah. There's not a, they're not a rhythm guitarist in our band. Our yeah. connection? <laughs> the who? Derek and the Domino. Oh, Derek and the Domino. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Dwayne Clapton. And, uh, Clapton, and yeah. I love listening to two guitars. Well, and they're, I like how, I mean, it is in both ears. Like you can tell how here, there's a, you know, Tom Verlaine's in one ear, Richard Lloyd's in the other ear. And it is just, you can just really, they just play off each other so that's, well. That's the first, I, I, <clears throat> this album, the fog did not clear on this album for a long time for me. I, it was hard for me to pick out what I was listening to. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Because the, one of the things that I've, my history with this, I, I think the first time I heard it, I guess I was in grad school and, um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> he said that he held his microphone with his pinky up when he yeah, said that's what that. I said. Anyway, okay. So anyway, I was, I was playing in a band and there was a guy that absolutely loved, uh, Dating television. a foxy girl going yeah, to grad right. school, yeah. playing in a big successful band, riding around in yeah, this bear successful. Cat. But anyway, he loved television and he, he, he introduced me to a lot of music. And so he said, have you ever heard television? I said, well, I've heard of them, but I don't really know anything about them. So he gave me a cassette and I listened to it and I went, eh. It's just not, it's not, it's not for me. And then another guy said, Hey, have you ever listened to television? I said, Yeah, I listened to them before. And it just didn't do anything for me. And then one day I just, I was reading something about how great, oh, it was, um, um, Girlfriend by Matthew Sweet. Richard Lloyd was on it. And I said, Okay, let me listen to, I like that album a, a whole lot. So let me listen to the, television again and something just happened i guess i was in my 30s or something and i just went holy crap this is unbelievable and i it for a while there this was one of my most go-to albums and then i kind of went away from it and then now i've come back to it i mean for this podcast and there's just so many things that opened up to me about it i didn't notice there was keyboards on it i didn't notice there was it's uh, immensely interesting yeah this is not a boring album to listen to yeah There's so much intricacy. When I start with a new album, if it's a certain kind of album, I can go, yeah, no, go away. Yeah. That would be contemporary country music, uh, songs about people's butts that I hear. (laughs) Contemporary Uh, Christian music. I can can quickly toss it away. Right. This one, I didn't get it at all, but I knew it was interesting. 
and I'm waiting for the sand to settle in the aquarium so I can see what's swimming around in there. Yeah. And I don't know what it is about the listening process where you have to have yeah. all those listens it's to not- get clarity. And the thing that caught me first were the guitars. Well, it's, you know, yeah. yeah okay, gotcha, I get it. This is a guitar band. Okay. All right. These guys are really good guitar mm-hmm. players. Okay. And then well, that it isn't the- acquired. This album is an acquired taste. It's not going to grab you on the first listen. If it does, it, that surprises me because well, it, it took me a few. Listens. I think that has to do. Uh, I think that if I may, because it say comes this, out of nowhere. Well, and I think it also has everything to do with Tom Verlaine's vocals. Yes, yeah. yeah. There's something that you have to get used to, yeah. and then once you do, at least for me, they fit perfectly yeah. with what's going on. Yeah. But I was going back to your dark question, and I read someplace. I thought this was really funny. I don't remember if it was Richard Lloyd or Tom Verlaine, but when the Cars debut came out, they're like, "Uh oh." This sounds like what we've been doing, but significantly more commercial. <laughs> and a lot of people compare them to the cars. I can hear a lot of cars. And I, and I can see that particular. kind of that angularity that we were talking about before the podcast, yeah. that kind of jerkiness. Fantastic of it. guitar player. But, and fantastic guitar player. But it's obvious. I mean, the Cars debut came out in 78. They, they, they weren't influenced by this in no. any way, I don't believe. I mean, they've been working as well. It's weird to think they both kind of came at things in a very similar way, although the yeah. cars are significantly more pop-oriented, I think, than television is. But yeah. the other band that was odd that I heard people talk about was The Dead. What? Yeah. And that's mainly because of the long jams, jams they the do. Jams. But the jams on this album seem much more uh, play, planned out. Well, here's what I I think this is... And I read this, and I was going, man, this band sounds really, really rehearsed. Yeah. And, yeah, they rehearsed themselves silly. Well, that yeah. happened once once Richard Hell left the band. Yeah, <laughs> once Richard Hell, like Richard Hell did not want to be I, rehearsed. Right? I, I want to say, is, go ahead. I just want to say, I think that disparaging him, the people who disparage him as a bassist, I think they're a little off. Because if you listen to some of that old stuff, he's not a bad bassist. He's not... He's not the bassist they end up getting, who's, I think, a fantastic bassist, oh, but he's not a yeah. bad bassist. But then also, I think people are goofy who say that band sounded better when he was with the band. Because if you listen to those demos, those Brian Eno demos that have Richard <clears throat> Hell on them, they're interesting. They're much rawer, but they don't sound like Marky Moon, which no. is... Fred Smith, the bass player, is a remarkable bass no, player. No, he's great. Yeah. Is he in the pocket? No. He's Sometimes safe. he's in the like he doesn't noodle very much. I don't know, but he he's, he he kind of kind of reminds me of uh, Mike Mills from from REM. Uh, that's a good. That's a good. Uh, I think that's a really good uh, example because I the thing I noticed about Fred Smith when I was listening to the bass is he would provide a melody line yeah. for the songs. Um, underneath the vocals, and then the guitars would do this other stuff. Because yeah. they're not really playing melody most of the time. They're doing something otherworldly. Yeah. yeah. But Verlaine's vocals are so choppy that the melody is sometimes hard to pick out. But if you listen to the, the bass, there's right. a melody line going on there, which I thought was really kind of fascinating. Yeah, he's but, a very melodic bass player. He's credited for being the one that finally provided the structure for all the rest well, of Well, when you go from of- Richard Hell to this guy, it makes <laughs> yeah, well, sense. He right? said the drummer's... The drummer's, the drummer's fantastic. All over the the drummer place. is amazing. And the Billy two guitar it. players are doing their deal. And he said, yeah. finally, when we got this bass yeah, They got player, someone that, we yeah. Had, we had a timekeeper. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. That's funny. He is a timekeeper. Yeah. He does not waver very much. Well, let's, and, can we go through a quick how we got to this album? Yeah. We start with two guitar players. <laughs> well, well, we don't actually, we don't start with the two guitar players. They, no, they have to meet somewhere. They Where did to, they meet? Well, they Tom Verlaine, they met, He Richard Hell and Verlaine were 
high school student, buddies. High school buddies. They right. went to they went to a boarding school in Wilmington, Wilmington, Delaware. Yeah. And actually, Verlaine, wonderful uh, so, place by the way, Wilmington. Is it? Yeah. Well, and and we'll, we'll just get, we're calling them Richard Hell and Tom Verlaine, but actually, that's not what they. Richard <laughs> Richard Hell's real name is Richard Myers, and Verlaine's real name is uh, Tom Miller. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, Tom Miller. So boring. <laughs> just saying, they changed they changed their names once they became television. So anyway, the two of them, as you mentioned, Jam, the two of them met in Wil- Wilmington, Delaware, at boarding school, and uh, Richard Hell ends up running away from school and moving to New York in the mid '60s. Tom Verlaine follows him shortly after that in the late '60s. They move; they're both in New York around '71 or '72. Billy Fika or Fika, I don't know how to say his last name. Fika. The drummer relocates to New York as uh, gets in touch with them because he and Verlaine were childhood friends, and so they start this band called the Neon Boys, mainly because they had gone down to see. And this is sounds like a broken record too. They went down to see the New York Dolls at the Mercer Art Center, and Richard Hell's like, "That's what I want to do." Yeah. I want to do that. And it's funny just briefly talk about the dolls because the dolls were, you know, they wore dresses and the makeup and they looked the whole glam scene. But the music they were playing was not what the glam was in the UK. This was like straightforward, <laughs> Straight, rock, bluesy, yeah. kind of stonesy rock and roll. I've often thought of them as the rolling, the American version of the Stones yeah. in a lot of ways, the way they sound. So uh, when they got together, one of the things they had to overcome was Richard Hell didn't know how to play an instrument. <laughs> So what does he end up playing, Doug? Naturally. <laughs> he ends up being the bass. Verlaine found a $50 Dan Electro and showed him just enough to get him around what they're playing. And um, and so they go in and they actually recorded a couple of a couple of songs. Um, I've got a I've got one here called That's All I Know. You can hear what the Neon Boys sounded like. So that's the Neon Boys. That sounds a little more punk, you know. And is that Verlaine singing? No, these these all the songs they recorded were written by Richard Hell, and he's and Richard Hell's singing. Okay, um, sounds a little well. bit like an Austin band that I know they credit was as an influence. <laughs> the Thirteenth Floor Elevators, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think I think that the, obviously they were listening to that stuff a lot, um, which yeah. of course makes us experts. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they, you know, they felt like, as you said. Jam, this is a little bit more punky and a little bit more primitive of what Tom yeah. Verlaine had envisioned. So yeah. they were looking for a second guitar. So we already talked about two of the people that they, they one that they supposedly auditioned and one who they definitely did. Uh, but because they couldn't find a second guitarist, they end up splitting up. Billy Fika moves to Boston and Richard Hell and Tom Verlaine end up working for a guy named Terry Ork, who was a associate of of Andy Warhol's he yeah. ran he ran this or records yeah. it was a memorabilia book a movie memorabilia bookstore called Cinemabilia he also at the time lived with this guy named Richard Lloyd who had grown up various places Pennsylvania New York New Jersey and he played drums and piano before he finally settled on guitar in high school the interesting thing about him i don't know if you guys knew this he supposedly met Jimi Hendrix well that's i, I saw that. him interviewed and he had a friend that was learning Take, how to play from Hendrix, and as soon as he'd leave Hendrix, he'd come and teach him what. Yeah, but he actually wow. met him once and supposedly saw him record in the studio a couple of times too, wow. which is pretty cool. That <laughs> yeah. That's like a fantasy. 
Anyway, Terry Ork's living with Richard Lloyd. He's working. He's managing Richard Hell and Tom Verlaine. Verlaine is play, still playing music. He's doing these not acoustic gigs. He's going out with an electric guitar by himself and playing at these coffee houses and stuff. And so, uh, Terry Ork gets Richard Lloyd to go see him play one night. And Richard Hell happens to be there, and he's helping out on the stage or something. And after Lloyd sees him, he's like. You know, because evidently Terry York wanted to do the Warhol thing and sponsor a band. He's looking to sponsor a band. So he says to Terry York, I think that guy, that Verlaine guy, has what you're looking for if you hook me up with him. Right. He said, he's got what I need, and I need what he's got. Yeah. You put us together. We're your band. That's right. And Verlaine didn't want to do it until Terry York waggled the, hey, you can come rehearse in my loft. Um, and so they had a place to play. And so at that point, the Neon Boys essentially transitioned to television, and that's when both Richard Hell and Tom Verlaine changed their name. They kind of a new start. They get Fika back to New York to play as a drummer, and so at this point, it's Richard Hell on bass, Richard Lloyd on guitar, Tom Verlaine on guitar, and Fika on drums. Drums, and so that's the television at the time. And as we we talked briefly about the whole CBGB saying, they start playing there. They get some interest. They get some interest in, from Brian Eno and Richard Williams, which we talked about. And I am happy to play one of those tracks if you'd like to hear one of the Eno tracks. The Eno tracks. Yes. So that's I like that. I like that. <laughs> it also sounds more Talking Heads ish. That's uh, that's Richard Hell that on bass. Sounds like that could have sold more records. <laughs> well, I think it would have fit in with what. There's a lot of people that say they like that better because it just sounds. It doesn't sound as out there. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it it would not take as long to let I, the water clear. I don't like it as much, but. All right, so yeah, Brian Eno ended up being in the studio. They recorded five songs with him: Venus de Milo, Marky Moon, which we heard, Friction, Prove It, and a song called Double Exposure that didn't make it on the final album. The rest of them all made it on the market. And then, as we said, they they disliked, or at least Tom Verlaine disliked Brian Eno, so they end up moving to Andy John's when they go to record this album. Around the same time they're finishing up the demos is the time that Richard Hell either gets the boot or leaves, depending. I don't know who you talk to. Yeah. He, he ends up moving and forming a band called the Heartbreakers with Johnny Thunders and Jerry Nolan of the New York Dolls. One of the things the three of them had in common was they all liked heroin. <laughs> and so really not a very no good glue to form a band around. Yeah. But uh, that didn't last very long. The Heartbreakers continued without Richard Hell, but Richard Hell leaves and forms the Voidoids. And the drummer, you know the vo- drummer who the Voidoids, the drummer was? Well, Buddy Rich. Marky Ramone. Oh, really? Yeah. Before he ended up playing with the Ramones. <laughs> right. Marky Ramone, yeah, was the drummer for the Voidoid. Anyway, Fred Smith, as we mentioned, ends up replacing Richard Hell. And Fred Smith was the original bassist for Ideas. The Jazz Messengers? No, he was in a band. We've talked about this band before. He was in a band. He was a bassist for a band called Angel and the Snake, who later changed their name to Blondie and the Bonsai Babies, who later changed their name to Blondie. <laughs> so he says he left because at the time Blondie was a mess and television was his favorite band, so it was a no-brainer. Yeah. 
So well, he's the one that needed a name change. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I always thought early on when I was reading Please Kill Me and he would come up, I thought they were talking about Fred Sonic Smith. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. That, five, that, and it's I, not. That my first thing I was going <laughs> to say no, was, not, it, yeah, it was MC. Did yeah. he play? <laughs> Eventually but you gotta the, wonder with guitar with the commercial success of this album if he's thinking, man, that switched from Blondie to, to television wasn't the best choice. And the smartest, smartest he could walk around going, oh, it's a highly acclaimed album. I, I think he ended up playing with the waitresses too later on. Yeah, he did. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. anyway, so one of the other interesting things about this band is they end up releasing one of the very what's considered the first independent single of that scene in 1975, and they released it on Terry Ork's label. And it's really not like anything else that was being played in 1975. Uh, and when when I play it here in a minute, it's definitely... Well, let's just... I'll ask you if you think it's very commercial. It was a song called Little Johnny Jewel. Who's playing that guitar? Well, it's either Richard Lloyd or uh, Tom Verlaine. Tom Verlaine. But it what, sounds like they're trying to do <clears throat> bad Miles Davis. From, well, yeah, it's definitely with like a... a with, so, the, with a fake steel guitar. <laughs> so here, here's the interesting thing about that. It's an eight-minute song, eight-minute-plus song. They had to release it in two... two ver- like part one and part two. Part one on one eight side of the single. <clears throat> part two on the other side of the single. So it wasn't even something that would fit on one... <laughs> one uh, single and it's split in two parts. It doesn't sound like it matters which side side B. But yeah, it's more of kind of a jazzy fusion y thing. Yeah. But it doesn't have commercial like a, success written anywhere it's on. Like they didn't have John McLaughlin playing on uh, Bitches Brew. They just brought <laughs> Hey guy off the street. <laughs> right. that, that is weird. Yeah. Anyway, that kind of brings us up to where we are now very very quickly. Very, very quickly. Yeah. Uh, where we are on to talk about Marky Moon. Now, here's a question for you all. They're the first in the door mm-hmm. at uh, CBDBs and the last to get a record deal. Right. Yeah. Your theory on why that is? I think it's all Tom Verlaine and wanting to make sure that whatever they were doing was as perfect as it could possibly yeah. be. That's yeah. That's my thought. I, I, knowing what I know about the band since I've you know, been researching. He, he just seemed like almost a perfectionist, but like he didn't want the studio to get in the way, I guess. He wanted to be as rehearsed as possible, mm-hmm. be as good as he could in the studio. It I mean, sounded like he didn't want a pop producer either. That was another odd Well, thing. He, he accomplished that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I th- if, if I were a guy that was signing bands for a living, they would have been the last one I chose. Really? I just don't hear a single. <laughs> Well, and the, the first single they release, um, I'm jumping ahead here, but it's Marky Moon, and they had to do the exact same thing with that song that they did the one we just talked about. They just split it into two, well, side one see, and yeah. side two, because well, yeah. it's too dang long to put on one side. I think yeah. of all the other bands playing in there, I'd jump on all of them before this. Yeah, I, w- yeah. I will say, though, that there's several... Talking Heads, I'd be slow on. Yeah, but I think there's songs on this album that... With a little tweaking, you could put Debra Harry in front of the band, and it would have yeah, sounded I think it, it, sort of blondie-ish, you know? 
And there was no, there's no harmonies really. You, you can't put anything like a, a synthesizer, dropping a synthesizer in there like you can with, with Blondie you, or the Talking Heads. You, there's, there's just nothing, there's no room in a Well, lot of it's time. not, and, and unlike the Talking Heads, which are just sort of avant garde in a lot of ways, I mean, there's a song structure here, and it's, and what these guys are doing with their instruments is pretty, pretty yeah. remarkable. And yeah. it's not like anything that, it's not hip in the way that yeah. some of the other stuff coming out of New York. Or it really, yeah. there's no, sh- there's no show with yeah. these guys, yeah. like the Talking Heads. There's no big theater. suits. Yeah, uh, there's fact, no. These guys candy. weren't allowed to move. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. That's not a joke, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> no, it's not. Tom told the band not to move. <laughs> yeah, he was told Richard Hell he was jumping around too much, and told him to stop. Right. Would well, and then he told the rest to stop too. Yeah, I would have. This is not. I don't, I don't think, think I, I mentioned a fun band. Yeah, I mentioned I would love to have been in the Moody Blues probably because everybody was so cool to each other. This is in my top list of bottom bands. To yeah. Be in. <laughs> well, it just seems like Tom was an absolute control freak. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, yeah, that that will kind of doom you sometimes. Record labels and because you're. You're so. Con- I mean, how many albums do these guys put out? They put out three, but yeah. two of them consecutively, and then they got back together in '92 and put one yeah. out. But I mean, to be <laughs> fair, they sold well in the UK. The US could not have cared less about them. Yeah. You know, sometimes I wonder if JM's not art. <laughs> <laughs> how much I control stuff? Yeah. I've, with Tony and I are sometimes scared to even talk. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we never talk. That By the way, funny. ladies and gentlemen, we're still waiting for the complaint letters on JM to come in. <laughs> yeah, I was expecting at least one. <laughs> the uh, y'all would would y'all like to talk about saying no evil? Sure. Yep. Is this a monkey? <laughs> That sounds a lot more like a hit than uh, Lucky Moon. I agree. I agree. Uh, that it, it is odd that that was not the song chosen because I think that fits in with the kind of stuff coming out. Uh, that you know, it's yeah. It definitely it seems much more of a of a song you could hear on the radio, mm-hmm. much more radio friendly. It's a great song. <laughs> it's a great song, and it's a great introduction to the band and the and the album. It's you got those interlacing guitars and you got the arpeggios and you got the riff going through it and there's some energy and forward motion oh God, yeah some well, of the other songs don't have that yeah you absolutely and this is this is one of the ones where he sounds to me the most like david johansson in his cadence like yeah. i could hear jo- david johansson singing the song yeah i, I could easily hear and, jo- david johansson and this is uh and just for uh, not to make people feel ignorant out there, but for those of you who don't know who that is, that was the guy who was the lead singer of the New York Dolls. I'm sure most of our also know you, Buster Point. Most of our listeners are smart enough to know that, but yeah. I just want to make sure that we didn't skip that over. Um, but the, this other thing about this song that is sort of a great intro to this band is how fantastic and melodic the solo is. Yeah, yeah. Because that's the one thing this album has going for it. Every guitar solo on it is just melodic as all of Get Out. Or just strange. It just, it'll bring you into it. But this is, yeah, this is a, a great, 
this is Richard mm-hmm. guitars. They they switch. They do. But yeah, it's just great guitar interplay. And it's almost it's sometimes it's hard to tell when they're actually soloing because there's just so much going on. Oh, do they just Yeah, but this one has a definite so yeah, this it has does. a definite yeah. solo on, you know, and yeah. and I think Richard Lloyd is the one who when he's playing, it's a little bit more of a you know, what I like to call what a Gilmore solo is, where you kind yeah. of sing along with it. It's yeah, got a tune yeah. To it. Well, it's great. A good one. Yeah, it is. And it's uh, it's a little deceptive about what's to come. I think. Oh, I think you're right I about that 100. percent right Yeah, because it, 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 with the exception of maybe one other song, none of the rest of them. You're not. It's not saying here's what you're in for. Yeah, it's exactly. a great song. <clears throat> And it is, I think, I, I, going back to what you're saying about coming at it new and going, oh, wait, this is a guitar band. It does kind of hit you over the head with that, too, yeah. but not really what, what's in store. Yeah. So stop dancing. <laughs> <laughs> Up next, Venus. Between my bones and skin, there stood I'm, I'm just surprised that he would hear his voice and think he should be singing. <laughs> I don't. I think it works I, perfectly for I, this. I, 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 I would have, but not. I can't imagine singing like that and thinking, "Oh man, this is really working." You know, it, you could almost put somebody like Willie Deville or somebody like this. Just, just somebody with a guttural low voice. I could, I could almost hear him I, getting away with that. It, but I love those vocals on this. I'm not. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just saying. It's so counterintuitive for anyone to think this guy should be singing, and it works. I'm agreeing that it works, but how do you how do you get to the other side of that mountain? Is what I'm wondering. Yeah, you know what's what's strange to me force. is I can hear so many different bands that this band that you would think they influenced oh, right but, off the bat. I but, hear, but the pro- but the problem Talking is dead. this record didn't sell very much. So yeah. I don't know if they actually did influence all these bands, but this, this album and in particularly this song, when it, this song and a couple other ones sounds so ahead of its time. I, it's, it's weird. I hear that song or just that the way that the song uh, buildings on fire from more songs about buildings and food talking heads album. Mm-hmm. It sounds so much like that to me. Well, I could see them obviously influencing the Talking Heads because yeah. they were playing on the same stage together. But like you know, you can hear there. This album is ripe with with people. I think wanting to say, "Oh, this influenced New Wave." I, maybe it did. I have no idea. Well, there's I mean, a little bit of a that. There's something kind of cool that happens. There's a little bit of a synth solo in the in it, and then mm-hmm. it goes into the guitar solo. What it's that they're also in the right place to be influencing bands yeah that's true if you think about yeah. the velvet underground and how few records they sold initially and then they were crazy influential I, I i get that and this is probably similar to love and all those bands where they got they got more popular as they went on or or sold more records but yeah even when the velvet underground was around i mean i think people maybe i'm wrong maybe reed was and stuff but i could be wrong about that well, but they they knew them i'm just comparing the their influence to record sales. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. Like I, if you're in Pampa, Texas, you 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 may sell sell the same number of records, but 
you're not going to have the influence you would at CBGBs. Gives me the CBGBs. You know what I really like about the song? And I will freely admit, I have no idea what the vast majority of these songs are about. But if this song is somehow about love, the concept of love, I love this image of falling into the goddess of love, Venus's arms, but the Venus you're falling into is the Venus de Milo who has no arms. I just yeah. think that's a cool image. Yeah. I don't yeah, know like, if it has anything great. to do with what the song's about, well, but it's a cool That's not image. it. He should that's, lie and say that's, that's what he meant. Yeah, it's very French. And I do think it's odd that he pronounces it Demillo. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it kind of fits with the song, but it's... Does I don't he do think, it for a rhyme? I don't think any... No. Yeah. I don't think anybody in the world says Venus de Milo, but Tom yeah. Verlaine... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's French. Oh, maybe. <laughs> Venus de, de Milo. Don't you have to go... You do, yeah, there's a lot of stuff you don't... Uh, what about friction? I can't figure out what this is about to save my life. <laughs> really? <laughs> So I heard that it was based on a uh, that it's based on an Oompa band. <laughs> Are you serious? Are you serious? That the the, the music. I, it's to me. It's again. This is another one. It, it's like the Talking Heads with punk guitars. To me, I, I'll tell you what it reminds me of, and this has everything to do with Fred Smith. There's this weird James Gunn theme going yeah, through it yeah. on the bass. Yeah. And it goes over this got that weird reverse descending scale. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh it makes the song really creepy kind of in a, I mean it's I, I'm gonna say something very strange. This record sounds like it, it this record sounds like it could it's it sounds like New York in the mid seventies to me. Yeah. It's got that kind of what, grunginess does it, does that to it. Part you know? remind you of David Lynch stuff. Yeah. Like yeah. 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 Oh, that's I can what, see that, but the guitars are, that's Verlaine playing it. He's playing in some sort of weird mode. I don't know what mode he's playing in, but there's definitely some modal playing yeah. in that. Just the, when he hits, the notes are just so weird. They're not on, it's like he's playing in a different time signature than the rest of the band. I, I mean, it's, this is one of the more fascinating. I absolutely love the guitar I, playing. I love the solo. I love the bass line. I even love the, the drums. No, I think the rhythm section on this song is really yeah. great. Especially because the guitars are doing such weird stuff that it grounds the song in a way that it wouldn't otherwise be done. This is this is a song though that I really can hear it. it, David Byrne like listening to this, going, "Oh, I yeah, I I want to do that." Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And let me get uh, some guy that can really play guitar on there. Oh, okay, let's get Robert Fripp. And and, yeah, yeah, all right. There's a another tune that comes next. It's called Marquee Moon.
Now, this is one of the ones that I that I think you you mentioned if Blondie were singing it mm-hmm. before that it would I think that could happen with this song. I, yeah, but I love Relaine's vocals. I man. love. I'm not, his, I'm not saying I don't they're like so. I'm just talking um, about connecting with th- ears this, on the earlier try. I, I've talked a million times about how I'm I because I'm not a musician. I always sort of gear towards a vocalist and also lyrics as well. I have no idea what this guy's singing about, but it's almost no like the vocals are di- another part of the song, an yeah. instrumental part of the song. It doesn't matter. You know, I know I've given you a hard time in the past about what vocal are, but they don't matter to this stuff. There's just, something... There sounds so straining, like he's, yeah. so, he's straining so no, hard to I get the I agree with words all out. y'all are saying. I'm, yeah. I'm just talking about how the, the gap between commercial success and, right. and yeah. that. Yeah. No, I you're right. You're right. A little tweak. Yeah, it's if, a fine line. If you could <laughs> to quote Spinal Tap. Well, you know the thing that's kind of interesting about this song is this was done in one take. Now, I there has to have been overdubs because I know there's a well, twelve there, string in there and there's keyboards. There are uh, there are overdubs on this, but uh, yeah, he said Andy Johns thought it was a rehearsal. But they, what what uh, Richard Lloyd has said about it is that there aren't any effect. The guitars are plugged straight into. Oh, really? The right amps, into the board, like, or straight to the amps with no effects or anything. Oh, wow! But there's okay. no effects on it. There's slight echo. This is you'll love this, Doug. There's a slight echo and delay on Verlaine's vocals to make him sound more robotic. <laughs> like you need to do that. Well, then there's but, something on the the snare drum. There is a there's, and I, it's not through the whole. Um, it's not through the whole song, but when he there's some breaks in there where it's just him and it's what's his name? Fred Ed, <laughs> Fred Ed Joe Ficka Billy Ficka. Billy Ficka yeah, yeah. It, there, there's some they, they do throw some echo on his on his drums with a little bit of reverb delay I, on it. It's really cool. I think it's really cool how the song starts off with each of the yep. band members kind of coming in after the other one. Like yeah. it starts off with that <clears throat> little guitar and then the little. The little other little, and then the yeah. bass comes in, and then the drums. <laughs> this song had twenty verses when it was originally written, <laughs> <laughs> and Verlaine used to perform it when he would do those solo shoes with an electric guitar. And then over time, it got truncated. But I say that because uh, when they first started playing it live, it was five minutes long. Really, five minutes long. It's now close to eight, I think, or no, it's, or it's eleven. It's almost thirty-eight. But when they would play after the album came out and they started playing it live, it bumped it. Uh, they bumped it up. Sometimes they played a twenty-minute version of the song. Wow. Yeah. The, the there's a what was it a, a second pressing that put the whole yeah the whole really? long part. Well, this this is ten thirty-eight, but I didn't notice it being ten thirty-eight. No, it no, also no. has a, a pause in the middle, yeah. like an intermission. It does, <laughs> and then and then the and then that sort of extended outro kicks in, mm-hmm. yeah, which and I then find it, yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. I didn't would, know you liked outros. The, the last time you really liked one was Layla, I think. But this is, to me, infinitely more interesting than Layla. Layla's boring to me. I find this one interesting, yeah. and it's not as long. I mean, the, but the, everything about this, the instruments on this are so interesting. The drum parts are interesting. The bass part, like, even that simple bass part that he's he's doing is, there's it's imaginative, Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're like I'm thinking about what would I've done. Oh, I wouldn't even have switched. I wouldn't even switch baseball when he's. I just, but he did. He switched to the. I think it goes from the one to the four, and he, I just would have stayed with the one, staying on the one there. But um, anyway, it's it's fascinating. Yeah, how he his his little bass part. This was a single in the UK, and it hit number thirty. Well, that's surprising, even because it's. It, a, 11 minutes song, and, and it was done. Like I said, it was yeah. split into two. Of course, it didn't do. Jack in the state, whatever. And I love there at the very end. There's a twelve string. The very end, or that that breakdown, 
the very end of that breakdown, the the chords that are being hit and the and the way that the bass is hitting notes that are they're not on the the one of five, and then you've got that twelve string guitar just going up, 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 up the neck. It's just yeah, I couldn't have come up with that in a million years. Beautiful. No, and it's fascinating how on these songs there's there's things if you sort of just listen half heartedly, it's like yeah. why does it, you, how does this work? Yeah, yeah, but it does. Yeah, and then Verlaine's playing piano on it too, and yep. there's some really great piano parts. Well, it's definitely it's definitely a well thought out. This isn't yeah. this isn't spontaneous. This no. is very very uh, planned. Yeah, very organized, very. Uh, <clears throat> architected yeah and we speaking of architects one of the things they do is allow buildings to climb into the sky and increase their (laughs) elevation yes and we're flipping the album over flipping over to elevation ladies and gentlemen There's some nice guitars in this. Oh one. yeah, and Beautiful we have uh, Lloyd is doing the double tracks. For, yeah. for this number. Yeah, it's a shame we didn't get to the point in the on the chorus where they do that weird off time thing with yeah. the guitars. Yeah, it's so cool. It yeah. gets me every time I hear it. Um, yeah, you know this. You, this is a song when I hear this. I, do you remember that song "Dangerous Type" by the Cars on mm-hmm. their second album? To me, this reminds this, they totally ripped. That guitar part off. You know what this reminds me of? You guys are going to find this pretty funny. This this song reminds me of Floyd a little bit. I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. Like the softer parts of Sheep, maybe, (laughs) or something. I don't know. There's something about this song that makes me think of Pink Floyd when I listen to it. Yeah. Well, it's not. I mean, it's obvious they've got some. I don't know if they would admit it, but there's some prog pretentiousness going on on some of this stuff, you know? Sure. Um, Another reason it's so funny that they get. Lumped into the punk, punk scene. Bill. Yeah. They, when they were recording this, according to uh, Richard Lloyd, they wanted, well, he said they wanted a rotating speaker. I guess he's talking about a, one of those Hammond speakers. Yeah, the Leslie, um, Leslie speaker. Le, but, um, Leslie cabs. But they couldn't afford it. So, so instead, while he's recording, while he's recording it, um, Andy Johns is swinging a microphone in the middle of the studio, right? <laughs> and he said he kept backing up because he kept he was coming close to ripping his nose off his face because he was swinging the mic so close. Now he knows what it's like playing in the Who. Yeah. <laughs> well, one of the things uh, this song to me, I guess this is Andy Johns' genius. I mean, this is this whole album, by the way, it sounds incredible. Yeah, and, especially if you compare to those demos. Yeah, yeah, it sounds incredible. And this song in particular, I I think, uh, is one of the best sounding it, songs. It's, it's funny that people talk about Andy Johns and they say, you know, I like the way they sounded before he got involved. This sounds like a Rolling Stones album. I'm like, what? What? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like they just wanted to hear that. Well, yeah. it's, just because the guy was involved in Rolling Stones, it doesn't sound like a Rolling Stones album. Well, anyway. We managed to bring up the Rolling Stones for the benefit of Tony. (laughs) We now move to a spiritual number called (laughs) Guiding Light.
this is probably the prettiest song on the album. I would say it's even soulful. It and Verlaine's playing those great piano parts. Yeah, the piano is really kind of cool. And and when yeah. the car the song starts off, you got the kind of arpeggio guitar in one yeah. channel, and, and the, the piano, piano in the other, yeah. and the bass in the other. Yeah, that's an important thing to mention that people need to listen to this with headphones because of it the, is yeah because of the way the <clears throat> different tracks are separated. Yeah. It's it's got my favorite guitar solo on the album. Oh, the, the solo, is solo heartbreaking. is heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. Um, although this song sounds to me like something Lou Reed could have done. Sure, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, I could hear him singing this easily. I spent a lot of my time trying to figure out which was my favorite guitar solo on the record. This this I, is up I there failed. For me. I kept doing the de- oh this <laughs> yeah. is it this, this is, is it. it yeah and then you go to the, oh oh no no that's right this yeah. is it. <laughs> They're think, so they're so beautiful. And just I know. Unbe- I mean, like I said, you can sing to them. You know, which yeah. is really something. And this is a Verlaine one, and usually Verlaine is yeah. the more out there soloist. Um, I, I like the guitar plan, both guitar players, because it's not obvious what what they're going to. You know, when yeah. you listen to country music, you know, exactly. you know that he's about to say "honey" because of the first line. Yeah. Um, Sometimes guitar solos can be like that, and these never are. No, no they never just hit like they, it's never the the first notes. One of those, I don't know, like a Gilmore. You know, you yeah. know the first thing that Gilmore is going to do is it. No offense to Gilmore, I think no, he's I a fantastic you. guitar player, but I don't know. I don't know how many times I listened to this album over the last several weeks, but I I was surprised almost every time I listened yeah, to it. Every time I got something, I think it's a cerebral album very yeah. much. Where your brain is really plugged in. Yeah. And it's you can't listen to it passively. It's not no. a passive album. It's not something it's, you put you on in the background. I, yeah. I could not listen to this while I was working. Yeah, I couldn't either. I had to stop today. I had, I was, there's there's some that we do that I can listen to it over and over and, yeah. and work and listen, but this yeah. one pulls you it pulls itself into the foreground of your attention. And another thing about this song, it's kind of a long song, is every verse, if you listen to it, the instrumentation is different oh really yeah every there's there's something and i just noticed that today like every especially on the third verse everything just there's stuff that changes another thing about the bass is the bass is kind of frenetic and it usually that distracts but the way that he's playing it is just so melodic and it Mm. just it helps out it it is strange how melodic these songs are because again they don't have any there's no reason that they should be yeah. Even with Verlaine screeching over the top of them, <laughs> I know, they're that's, still And I think that might be out. one of the things that Doug's getting at, is that his voice is not melodic. Yeah. He is never... Yeah, it he, hides the melody. It hides yeah. the melody almost. It I think almost, that's right. Which I think kind of gives it its edge. I think Maybe. a lot. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, it yeah. may make it harder to listen to it first and harder to stop listening to later. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Once you get into it. Yeah, yeah. Well... We're always asked to do this, ladies and gentlemen. The next song is Prove It. That one you think, yeah, I know where we're going here. I know what this song is. And then, boom. You're not. And and it's so, the time signatures are so weird on this. This song 
if you listen to the demo of Prove It, this song sounds as good as it does because of Fred's. It, the bass on the on the, the demo bass is amazing. Is very sort of straightforward. His bass playing on this song is it sounds like. Hear me out. It sounds like Stand by Me. It's sure. got this. Well, this thing has yeah, that's no, it's it, got it, this I, in my I, notes. I was just this is like a bossa nova. It's it, like that it from the like doo-wop era. Yeah, yeah. And, but but the guitars are doing something that, other than the. I mean that strumming thing. But yeah. then they go. I mean, yeah. I this song yeah. may be my favorite song in the album. It's not the most interesting song, but there's something about it that is just so appealing to me that every time I hear it, I like oh, oh man, yeah, and that the harmonics that start off that that's like. Um, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah it cool starts little, off with the harmonics. Yeah, in it. that's so cool how he does that, and it's just so clean and so. I mean, the second single. This was the second single on the album, and it peaked at number twenty-five in the UK. Of course, again, did nothing here. here. And this was printed. It was colored vinyl as well. The first fifteen thousand copies were a certain type of green, and then the second fifteen thousand were a second type of green. But <laughs> uh, yeah, it didn't do anything in the states. Although this seems, I could see this being. Again, maybe taken out of context, having Tom Verlaine sing over it, playing this on the radio, someone's like, what the heck is this? Yeah, I want Benny King. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. Benny King. (laughs) But, I mean, it's a fascinating song. I'm going to, I don't understand why this song hasn't been covered. It it just seems like. probably has been. Yeah, I don't know of any. Most of these have been. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, Echo and the Bunnymen did uh, Elevation. Oh, really? Yeah, right? I bet that'd be cool. I bet it would it be, is. too. Yeah. yeah. Um, wow, we should put that on the... Uh, yeah. We'll put that on the old website. Yeah, let's put it on the old website. No, they did Friction. I'm sorry. Well, Friction. Still cool. Still cool. That'd still be cool, yeah. Still be cool. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the last track, Torn Curtain. You don't get to say expose in every song. <laughs> uh, one thing I want to say about the song before I forget, how he did that opening drum line, mm-hmm. I have no idea how he did it. Because it, start, it starts off high and then it gets low. I don't know if like somebody had to have been putting their elbow on the, on the tom or whatever he's playing and just started releasing it gradually. I, it, it's amazing. This sounds like a, almost like a spaghetti western, the opening yeah. of a spaghetti western. What you don't get from what we played is there's some elements of this song that are also very, very proggy. Sure. The song has some... It's prognosious. Yes. Yeah. The yes. bass is pretty yeah. proggy. It's a perfect way to end this particular album. I, I think, think so, too. It's a, <sighs> it's a great... And the piano parts mm-hmm. in it are very interesting. Uh, it just weaves their way through the whole, whole song. Yeah. I mean, it, it to me, this is kind of shows their versatility and again, <laughs> Verlaine's vocals. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's still Verlaine's vocals and it, it's, it's going to, I mean, the one thing you got to say about his vocal, no song is going to sound cliche. No, you know, it's he, true. He, he's immediately yep. going to make something not cliche just by singing. Well, it's funny listening to him out of context in these little snippets. They definitely sound more jarring than they do when you're listening to the entire song yeah. or the entire album. Yeah. yeah. It's you get, <clears throat> acclimated to the mm-hmm. to the voice as you go through the album. Yep. Yeah. 
especially with each listen. I mean, this is definitely a multi-listen album. Yeah, yeah. it's. I I feel like I had to, you know, I dug a lot on that uh, XTC album and never got anywhere. <laughs> and I felt almost the same at the beginning of this album, but. By the time I'd done my 20 or so listens, I was way, way into it. And yeah. I, I think the guitars had quite a bit to do with providing me the on-ramp. Yeah, I, I yeah. could see that. I mean, you're a guitar guy, and this it, it, I, I, there was some point it was going to click, right? Yeah. You know, you know, when that when the guitar, when I first went, oh, 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 okay, I've got two guitar guys tearing it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and where are they today now? Well, um a little bit interesting story after this. They so like I said, they did better in the UK than they did in the US. And uh, Verlaine wanted to take advantage of that, and do a quick tour of the UK. But the record company had already put them on the opening slot for Peter Gabriel's 1977 American. And for some reason, Peter better Gabriel's than Blue fans Oyster Cult did not like what they heard, and so that it was not a very good tour. I don't know why. I mean it. I think it would fit fairly well, but whatever. It, it, it would if if you're acclimated. Yeah, I but guess so. Gabriel's got such an attractive voice. Right. No, the, you're absolutely, there is a, a huge jarring difference there. But anyway, they ended up, they did end up turning the UK in May, and Blondie opened for him, which would have been... Um, although I think Blondie would have... I, I think Blondie would have been a tough act to follow for um, how much fun they probably were on stage, and then you come out and you see television but maybe the uk fans are okay with but after the tour this album had only sold about eighty thousand copies and so electra was kind of lukewarm about it they did record a second album afterwards called adventure and they released that in 78 and it's a little bit it sounds different than this it's a little softer not quite as angular as we talked about before yeah critics liked it but not the fans not many people bought it and then they broke up Richard Lloyd and Tom Verlaine kind of went their separate ways. And like I mentioned, uh, Billy Fike was in The Waitresses. They end up getting back together in 92 and released a self-titled third album, which I think people liked in general. But again, it didn't didn't really set the world on set fire. the world on fire. So that's, but that's, they have, that's yeah. television. Then cable yeah. came around. And <laughs> yeah. Then streaming. Yeah. Next band yep. would be streaming. But yeah, they were, the, the, you know, you cannot underestimate their influence and just just how good the these guys were as players remarkable and i i think that's you know a lot of people you know why they were not just like sought after i think everybody in new york loved them yeah well and, and you i mean i can imagine as you st- stated in, in cbgb's when the way he hilly crystal set those bands up so you go in to see these bands and you're seeing some like the ramones who routinely fought on stage and started off playing the wrong songs and all that kind of stuff. I mean, people yeah. talk about how funny it was, but also how what a kind of a smack in the face it was once they got going. And then you hear this. Yeah. And when you listen to this, when you listen to live television at this time, these guys sounded great live. So it's just, I, I don't know. It would have been tough to get your head wrapped around. It, yeah. when, I watched, when I watched them, mm-hmm. it made so much more sense than just listening to them. And really? I'm not exactly sure why, but... And with guitar bands, it's much more fun to watch them because you get to see what they're doing. Like those guys we saw, who were those wrestlers that were with uh, <laughs> wrestlers? <laughs> well, straight jackets. Yeah, that was so fun watching those two duel with each other. Oh, yeah. 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 That was so good. <laughs> wrestlers. <laughs> well, they had the mask on. They like, did have the Lucha Libre mask on. Yes. Yeah. All right, fellas. Well, that, that was nobody's pick. 
So I can choose anyone to go first and last. (laughs) So I believe I'm going to go to our beloved producer, uh, Jonathan J.M. Rowe. And Jonathan, we want to have your cold-hearted critics rating, and then we want to know flower inside of your heart. What does it say? (laughs) I am going to go with my critics rating first. I'm going to give it a... A four nine, and I can't really think about why I'm not giving it a five zero. I just think that maybe Verlaine's vocals might detract a little bit from it, but the the playing is is incredible. I also think some of the lyrics are a little too precious, but um, if you know what they're about, yeah. If you tell that, me, that, I don't. <laughs> I know that that's kind of the point. Yeah. Other than that, I mean, just it, it's it's a great album, and it should be, and it should be regarded as one of the albums you should you should hear, you know, before you die. As my personal rating, I'm going to give it a four eight. Every time I hear this album, I hear something new, which is a is a big thing with me. I can hear where they influenced a lot of bands that I like, and I can also hear that they took influences from a lot of so uh yeah it's it's definitely a it's gonna be a four eight well so. thank you jonathan jm row but i'm gonna go next because i'm scared i'm gonna forget what i'm gonna say <laughs> uh, number one the first and most important thing for me to say about this album is despite the fact of having to having listened to it a bunch of i am not through on this album so when i give a rating it is not dried and hardened and cured yet it is still malleable but i'm gonna say uh personally i give it a a four five and i believe that that's gonna change but i did enjoy listening to it eventually at the first part it was only my mind that was engaged and i was having a hard time seeing through the noises to the to the music and I'm going to say, if you're going to get this record, don't dabble in it. You're going to have to work at it. Yeah. That's my that's my advice. And I think my critical rating would be a 4.7. And I think that's probably going to change, too. It is extremely original. The guitar playing, which, of course, caught my ear first, is very interesting. Never dull. Never predictable. Tony? Yeah, I do. Oh, you want my... Oh, you're supposed to know what to do. I'm, I should <laughs> Sorry. I, hold your hand. I'm just going to say, I, I give it the same rating for both, and it's a 4-7. It's a this album is absolutely intriguing. It's so interesting to listen to. It's not... You never get... Bo- At least I never got bored listening to it. And like I said earlier, I just heard something new almost every single time I listened to it. I real it's weird. I shouldn't like Tom Verlaine's vocals, but I love them for some reason. I think they're great. I mean, they're not great as in, you know, his his range or whatever, but I think they're great for this. And just everything about this album just really kind of hit me in a in a weird way, especially listening to it for this because I've listened to it, you know, I've known about it for a long time. Yeah, four four uh, four seven for both. The thing I think, even though I the outro is great on Marky Moon, I think some of these songs are just a tad bit too long. Huh. It's just a tad bit. That's the only thing I would knock them on. Tony, thank you for that. And you know, now that I'm through listening to this record, I'm not really sure what I'm going to listen to next. And I was wondering if you had any recommendations. 
Yeah, I do. I, you know, I struggle sometimes trying to figure out, match something up with this, but I knew I wasn't going to be able to find anything that was even close to this album. So I thought I'd just pull an album I like that a band I've been meaning to talk about for a while. Maybe we'll do one of their albums, but they're not super well known. So I, whatever. Um, it's a band out of Nashville called The Nobility, and they've been around, you know, for a while. This, um, this album, I'm, talking about tonight was released in 2007 it is called the mezzanine and it actually was i think their first album after they changed their name from jetpack actually they were called jetpack uk for a while because there was another band in the states called jetpack so they just added as a joke added uk to the end of it but then they (laughs) they ended up changing their name to nobility and they're kind of a baroque pop band out of nashville they sound very british sometimes they sound very much like the kinks but yeah, so uh, anyway, I'm going to play a tune of theirs called The Mezzanine, which is the title track on that album. Hand in hand in the springtime breeze, both of us hillcrest bound. I tell my joke with relative ease and we watch the sun go down. We're out So that's the title track, but they don't all sound like that. They that's also great. have yeah. things like Skeleton Key. Anyway, Mezzanine, I'm sorry. Yes, The Mezzanine by The Nobility, 2007. Check it out. We'll have the recommendation on the webs. Well, that sounds good, Tony. Great recommendation. And that brings us to the end of another episode of This is Vinyl Tap, the podcast that always goes to 11. And if you like this episode and you're new to This is Vinyl Tap, please visit the podcasting platform where you downloaded us and leave us a review or Give us some stars. You can even complain about me if you want to, not just Doug and Tony. Uh, If you're inclined and you know people who like the long player format, please tell them about this podcast. We would love to spread the word. And you can also leave us a message on our Twitter account at Tapping Vinyl. Or you can visit our Facebook group page. But as always, for the ultimate This Is Vinyl Tap experience, please visit our webpage at tappingvinyl.com. You can find links to past episodes. You can find all sorts of good stuff up there about bands we've talked about, outtakes, rare photos, um, all sorts of good stuff up there. Tony does a really good job putting that together for us for each episode. For our host, Doug Cooper, our co-host, Tony Slagle, Jonathan J.M. Rowe, this is Vinyl Tap for all the podcasts go to 11. Pretty good one, guys.